So a number of years ago, I can't remember exactly how many it was, a really strange debate took the internet by storm. And I know the internet's really good at that, having just strange debates. This one uh, was really popular, though. And the debate centered on the picture of a dress, particularly the color of a dress. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Golden white? Any other opinions on this? It was a dress that it, two people would look at the same picture. And one person, like Reverend Golaxon here, would say, definitely gold and white. Gold and white. And then another person would look at the exact same picture and they'd say, no, that dress is definitely black and blue. And you might think, how on earth can two people look at the same exact picture and see such radically different things? It's not like gold and white and black and blue are like even relatively similar colors. They're vastly different colors. And I think that's what made the whole debate so interesting. That we could look at the same thing, see two very different things. Now this might be the weirdest statement I ever make in a sermon. So I'm a weird person, but this is hopefully really weird. There is at least one way that Jesus is like that dress. Probably never hear that again in a sermon. Jesus is like, <laughs> Jesus is like that dress. And the one way that Jesus is like that dress is that people can read the same Bible, they can read the same Gospels, and see completely different Jesuses. And that's not necessarily a good thing, right? There's one Jesus. There's one truth about Jesus. But some people read the Gospels and they see a good teacher with moral lessons. Maybe some people see a made-up character who's just a legend altogether and not real. Some people legitimately read the New Testament, read the New Testament, and they see that Jesus is a really great man, but he's not God, and he's not completely who he says he is. And then others, rightly, read the New Testament. We look at Christ in the Gospels, and we see God come in the flesh, come as the Savior of the world. And just like with the dress, there is one right answer, and the right answer is blue and black. Sorry, it's actually true. It is a blue and black dress. It just looks white and gold. But there's also a, a right answer about Jesus, right? It's not just neutral that we read it and we read whatever we want. We can just read whatever Jesus into the New Testament that we want to read. There is a true Jesus, and it matters a lot what we see when we see Christ. And this problem with seeing vastly different things when we looked at Christ is not new today. It happened a lot during his ministry that people would look at Jesus and they'd not really be able to truly grasp who he was. They wouldn't be able to truly grasp what the significance of his ministry was. Some people looked at Jesus and they loved him. Some people looked and they were amazed. Other people looked and were confused. And many, even as some will see in this passage, looked at Jesus and they hated him, right? And what's interesting in the passage today is we're going to see one of those disagreements about who Jesus was and the significance of his ministry. And the people that Jesus interacts with in our passage today, they didn't just get it wrong. They got it shockingly wrong. They got it exceedingly wrong. So let's look at that today. Let's go to God's word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Luke 11, verses 14 through 28. 
please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you say that we are blessed if we hear your word and we keep your word. So we ask this morning, as we look at Luke 11, that you would enable us to hear your word that you would speak into our darkened hearts and minds and shed the light of Christ, that we would see him for who he truly is and the significance of his ministry for what it truly is. So help us to hear your word correctly, but also help us to do it, help us to keep it. Ask that you would show us our sin, that you would take the parts of our heart that are in darkness and bring them to the light that you would enable us to apply your word, that we would obey you and follow your commands, that we would live as right subjects and citizens in the kingdom of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's our big idea for the morning. The coming of the kingdom entails the victory of the king and the response of his subjects. The coming of the kingdom entails the victory of the king and the response of the subjects. And we're going to work through that big idea in three parts. We're going to look at the coming of the kingdom, the victory of the king, and the response of the subjects. And that's going to kind of be our outline, our three points for today. So let's start with the first section. This is going to be in verses 14 through 20. We're going to look at the coming of the kingdom. So this passage is very unique, very unique, especially in the Gospels. 
Usually when you read through the Gospels, you read about a miracle of Jesus, a majority of that narrative is, is talking about and showing the miracle itself. But in this passage, the miracle itself only takes up one verse. The very first verse is the only verse that really says what happened. The miracle just kind of happens quickly and moves on right away to an explanation of the miracle. So what makes this passage really unique is that it gives us an insight into what we might call a theology of miracles. Jesus gives us insight into why he was casting out demons, why he was healing a mute man, and what that actually meant. So this is really interesting. So I want us to pay attention to what Jesus tells us about his miracles. The passage begins in verses 14 through 16, kind of shows the different responses. So Jesus casts out a demon that was causing a man to be mute, which is kind of a two-part miracle, really. He's casting out a demon on one hand, and then the casting out of that demon also heals a mute man. So he's kind of doing this two-part miracle. But then people respond differently to what they have seen. One group of people thinks that Jesus is really just casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. That's in verse 15. And what they're saying is that Jesus is really just a servant of Satan. He's doing this by witchcraft or sorcery or something. By the power of Satan, he's casting out these demons. And that's the group that Jesus really responds to in this passage. There's a second group of people, people that were seeking a sign, and Jesus responds to them too, but he responds in next week's passage. So if you kind of want two part, part two of Jesus responding to these people, come next week, Jesus responds to those seeking a sign. So we're going to focus in particularly on that group of people that thought Jesus was a servant of Satan. And this is why I say they didn't just get it wrong about Jesus. They got it surprisingly wrong. They got it shockingly wrong. I, I want us to just sit for a second and really try to wrap our heads around how twisted it is that these people would look at the Son of God healing a man, casting out a demon, and they would say, that's Satan at work. That's the devil. That's crazy. That's twisted. It's wrong. It's a ridiculous insult. And Jesus responds to these people in verses 17 through 20, and he makes three arguments to them. And they're based on three if statements. You'll see and if, and if, and then but if. And all those are actually just the same two words in Greek. So it's kind of this three-part argument that he makes with these if statements. They're called conditional statements. The first two statements show why their opinion is wrong. And then the third one is where he lays out a different view, a different theology and understanding of what's actually going on in the miracle. And his arguments are really simple. First, divided kingdoms and divided households can't stand. That's his basic premise. That's his principle, which he applies. And I experienced this a lot in college. I played ultimate frisbee, which I promise is a real sport. And there was one way of always telling for sure when you had another team beat. And that's when that team started arguing amongst themselves. There was one instance my senior year where we were playing a really big game against Carleton College, who at that time, I don't know anymore, was tied with Wisconsin for the most Division I national championships in history, in the history of Ultimate Frisbee. They're really good. They're ranked in the top 25 in the nation. And we go in and we got a small lead on them early in the game. But when you're playing a team that good and we were that outmatched, 
you know, you know that they're going to come back, right? They're going to come back. They're going to crush us. It's not even going to be close. But when we got ahead of them, their teammates started yelling at each other. They started arguing with each other. The coach was visibly frustrated on the sideline. And a team that should have completely destroyed us fell apart completely. And we rolled to a fairly easy win against a team that we had no business even really playing. So a divided kingdom, a divided household, and a divided ultimate Frisbee team, it just can't stand. It doesn't work. So what Jesus is saying here, and his argument is, if I'm working for Satan, and I'm not just casting out a demon here or there, I'm like going around casting out demons, there's this great victory over the powers of darkness. If that's by Satan, then there's something terribly wrong going on in the ranks of Satan. There's a civil war going on, and the kingdom of Satan is in real trouble. It wouldn't make any sense for Satan to send me, if I was one of his henchmen, to go destroy a bunch of his other henchmen. A divided kingdom can't stand. And then his second argument points out the inconsistency of those people who are calling him a servant of Satan. It says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, then what do you do about your sons, or to be translated, your followers, who are also going out trying to do exorcisms? Why aren't you making that same claim about them? You're only making that claim about me. You're being inconsistent when you talk about someone casting out demons. So Jesus lays out those two arguments. They're, fair, they're, they're really compelling, right? He levels their argument. But then what's really interesting and I think really helpful for us is when he then lays out a positive view. He says, this isn't what ha what's happening, obviously. So if that's not happening, what's our other option? But if this is by the finger of God, which is by the power of God, and actually is a reference back to Exodus 8, if you want to read through the plagues. Uh, Lexi and I are actually reading through Exodus ourselves right now. Just read through this where in the plagues, the first two plagues, the magicians of Egypt were able to replicate, right? But then the third plague came, and the magicians of Egypt are like, we can't do that. That's by the finger of God. It was the defeat of the powers of darkness in Egypt as God brought his people out. So Jesus is referencing that. It's the power of God. It's the finger of God at work here. And because that's really what's happening, what that means is that the kingdom of God has come. And that's Jesus' theology of miracles. Miracles mean that the kingdom of God has come, that it is actually come. Not just that it's drawn near or that it's like kind of come close and maybe we get a little picture of it. It's that the kingdom of God has actually come. The king has come. This is an outworking of the kingdom. There are a lot of different ways that we can approach miracles, a lot of different ways that we can try to understand what they're going on, what's going on there. Sometimes we can treat them as if they're primarily an object lesson that teaches some like deeper moral truth, that Jesus is just merely an example about how we need to care for people physically, or that Jesus is proving that he's God. And yes, he's doing all of those things in his miracles, but he's not just proving something. He's not just making a point. When Jesus came as the king, when he cast out demons, when he did miracles, it was an actual expression and outworking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom was there on earth reigning. He was conquering the enemies of God's people. He came to defeat sin and death and the fall. 
He's overturning the effects of the fall. And we need to use this kind of as the grid for understanding miracles when we approach them in the Gospels. What we're getting is we're getting a foretaste and a picture of what the kingdom of God actually looks like. We're getting a picture of what a victorious king does when he conquers the powers of darkness. We're getting a picture of what a victorious king does when he overturns the effects of the fall and draws subjects and citizens to himself. It's a beautiful thing. So we need to keep in mind that's what's going on. Jesus is saying this miracle is an expression of the coming of the kingdom of God. And that leads us into the second, two, the second section and third section of this passage. So if the first section teaches that Jesus' miracles display the kingdom of God and that, that it has come, then we should ask, what are the implications of that? What are the implications of the coming of the kingdom for the world and for us? That's where we see that the coming of the kingdom, this is a big idea again, entails two things, the victory of the king and the response of the subjects. Gearhardus Voss, I don't know how many people recognize that name. I know Eric does because he just read a book by him. A great old dead reformed theologian, Gearhardus Voss, describes the kingdom of God this way, and he includes both of these two points, so listen for them here. He says, the kingdom exists there where not merely God is supreme, for that is true at all times and under all circumstances, but where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers and brings men to the willing recognition of his name. So you see the two elements in there, the coming of the kingdom? God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers, the victory of the king. And he brings men to the willing recognition of the same, the response of the subjects. Okay, so there's those two elements of the coming of the king, of the kingdom. Let's look at the first one here, the victory of the king, verses 21 through 22. That's our second section today, the victory of the king. Jesus teaches about the implications of, of the kingdom here particularly for the victory, his victory over Satan, which Chris helped, uh, helped a lot talking about in the children's message. I could probably skip through this section. You'd get the main idea from what Chris said. But he says this in verses 21 through 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So this is a short parable, actually. Jesus is saying, Satan is like a strong man. He guards his palace. He guards his, good, his goods. But he's really only a strong man until someone stronger than him comes along and defeats him. And the stronger one in the parable is Jesus himself. So I know it feels 70 degrees outside right now. But we know that winter is coming. It's just around the corner. I'm sorry. I have to be the bearer of bad news. But winter's really fun in a lot of ways. I love going ice fishing. Some of you might like going sledding or cross-country skiing. When I was a kid, though, the coming of winter really only meant one thing, and that was intense snowball wars. Not just like an occasional snowball fight where you throw a snowball here and there. I mean like stockpiling snowballs, building forts, 
going at it in huge like lobbies, uh, lobs of snowballs over the walls and like really intense. My, my family had four boys in it. The neighbor house had five boys in it. So we had nine boys in these two houses. I'm so sorry for our mothers. And we were always throwing things at each other all year long, but especially in the winter. And there were three kind of age groups for those nine boys. There were what we called the little kids, who was the youngest four, my little brother, and then the three youngest, there were the ham boys. And so there was the little, little kids, and then there were the big kids, who was me, and then, my, then the two oldest boys from that other family who were my age, the big kids. And then there was the two older, my two older brothers, who really didn't have a label, because when you're 10 years old, a high schooler is like a full-on adult, and you don't think of them as a kid anyway. So they were kind of the two older ones. And of course, being the big kids, we wanted to have our way in these snowball wars. And so we would always set it up that it would be big kids versus little kids. And you can imagine probably how that went. Of course, we were, like, we were outnumbered. They had four, we had three, but we were older, we were bigger, we were stronger, we were faster. We threw snowballs a lot harder, which usually meant one or two of the little kids would be out of the war because they'd go in the house crying. And so we'd, we'd have this, this thing, we'd, we'd spend all morning building up our forts, building up the walls, and then sometime in the afternoon or evening, snowballs would start flying. And it was so much fun as the big kid. So much fun, because we always won, right? It was the best. Our fort was always impossible to, to take over. The little kids never even got close. But there was always the off chance that kind of the older, older kids, my older brothers, would make their way into the snowball fight. And in those moments, those are the moments where we felt vulnerable, when my brother would bring a couple of his friends, and they would run into our impregnable wall, and they would just knock it down. And they would whip snowballs at us, and we would go running, right? A strong man is only a strong man until a stronger man comes along. And that stronger man in this passage is Jesus. And what's really funny in that illustration is I was putting myself in the place of Satan, so kind of a fun tidbit. And if either of my brothers ever listened to this, yes, I compared you to Jesus, which is good. Satan may be strong, but Jesus is stronger. And the point is that it's not even a close match. It's not that Jesus and Satan are standing toe-to-toe -to -toe in this battle, and we're wondering who's going to win? Who's going to do it? Is Satan going to take over Jesus this time, or is Jesus going to storm the castle, and he's going to be victorious? It's that it's not even close. Jesus is the sovereign, all-powerful creator God. There's no chance Satan has no chance against that stronger man. And it's so important for us to see the significance of that in Scripture, to see the significance of Jesus' victory. Again, Chris did a great job of laying this out. But I think it's hard for us as 21st century Americans to really wrap our head around how significant it is that Jesus defeated Satan. We forget constantly that spiritual forces are real. We forget and act as if Satan isn't real, as if demons aren't real, as if there's nothing beyond this physical world. If you proclaim this message in another part of the world where they take darkness seriously, they take spirit seriously, to say that Jesus has come and defeated the powers of darkness is incredibly good news. 
It is a gospel, a good news to them. But we don't often receive it as that. We read, yeah, Jesus defeated Satan, cool. And then we like, now let's talk about Jesus defeating sin. But he did both of those things. And it's so important in the storyline of the Bible, as Chris laid out. The Bible starts right away in Genesis 3 with Satan setting himself up as the great enemy of God's people, the deceiver, the tempter, the accuser. And God's promise of salvation and the outworking of redemption through the Bible is God's defeat over Satan and his minions. Even just in the New Testament, I want to just quote a couple verses here to help, help us see how prevalent this is. It's all over. John 12, 31, right before Jesus is going to be betrayed and go to the cross, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Would we usually answer the question, why did Jesus come? Would it even be in the top 10 that we'd usually say, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil? Often, I don't think I would. We need to take this seriously. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, came as a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And I'm not even going to get into Revelation like Chris did, which is almost completely about the victory of Jesus over the powers of darkness. So we need to see that the coming of Christ and through him the coming of the kingdom of God means the defeat of Satan. I'm not going to be able to talk about every aspect of why that's important, but I, what I want to do is challenge you to actually take some time to meditate on that. To actually think through the significance of Jesus' victory over Satan. Maybe even look up verses throughout the New Testament or read a, a chunk of the book of Revelation. See that this is an essential part of the work of Christ and his death on the cross. So the coming of the kingdom entails the victory of the king. And the last section is the response of the subjects. So Jesus teaches not only that he comes and, and, and is victorious as a king, but that he's going to draw people to himself and these people need to respond to him in a correct way. I want to note three things about how we should respond. The first point is that neutrality is impossible. Neutrality is impossible. Look with me to verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I love what Daryl Bach says about this. He says, there are no Switzerlands in this, comic war, in this cosmic war. You know anything about wars in Europe over the last hundred years. There are no Switzerland's in this cosmic war. You, you are either for Jesus or you're against him. And he's saying to those people that were saying that he was from Satan, he's like, no, if you're against me, which you obviously are, then you're actually the ones that are on the side of Satan. Not me. They had gotten it completely backwards. And this means that we need to make a decision when we come to Christ. There are really only two ultimate options before us. Jesus isn't just someone to look at and say, I kind of like him. He's pretty neat. He's a kind of cool dude. I like studying stuff about him. 
No, Jesus is a king. And you're either one of his citizens or you're one of his enemies. And that's harsh. But Jesus was harsh. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. Neutrality is impossible. The second point about responding. External righteousness is not enough. External righteousness is not enough. Look to verses 24 through 26. Jesus uh, continues on with the theme of casting out demons. He talks about what happens when a demon is expelled from someone. He uses this as an, as an illustration. He says, a demon leaves somebody. That person's obviously in a better state because that demon left. And they clean up their act. They, uh, they get their house swept and put in order. But in the end, the demon returns, and he returns with seven others, and the whole situation is worse than it was before. So the point is that merely cleaning up your act, merely getting your house swept and put in order, that's not enough. And I love what William Hendrickson, one of my favorite New Testament commentators, love what he wrote about this verse. It's one of the few times where he's kind of sassy. He says, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't swear, hallelujah, I'm a Christian. And then he says, if a telephone pole could talk, it might say the same thing. But a series of zeros does not make a Christian. A million negatives do not produce a positive. We pity the man with an empty mind. But what about the person with an empty heart, an empty life? Desisting from doing wrong differs by a whole heaven from being a blessing. I love that. Desisting, sorry. All right. Desisting from doing wrong differs a whole heaven by a whole heaven from being a blessing. So what does a correct active response look like if it's not just cutting a few things out of our lives and then leaving kind of our heart empty? So we come to the last point. We must hear and keep his word. We must hear and keep his word. Look at the last two verses. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do it. So the woman raises her voice. She shouts out, and really what she shouts out is, is a praise to Jesus. It seems right away that it's primarily about Mary, but it's not primarily about Jesus. Uh, not primarily about Mary, it's about, primarily about Jesus. To have such a great child was a blessing to parents. So they're saying, oh, what it would be like to be the mother of such a one as this. She must be a blessed woman because this must be such a good son. So really it's it's about Jesus. It's praising him. And Jesus doesn't say that what she said was wrong. He doesn't necessarily say, you're completely off base here, woman. And I actually like, instead of translating this as rather, translating it as yes, but. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, your statement hasn't gone far enough. There's something beyond just being blessed because you gave birth to the Messiah, which you are blessed if you give birth to the Messiah. There's a blessing further than that. So he says, in a way, he says, yes, 
my mother was blessed to give birth to me, but what brings even more blessing than giving birth to the Messiah? That's hearing the word of God and keeping it. And these two things, hearing and keeping, or hearing and doing, are all throughout the Bible, all over the place. Earlier in Luke 8, verse 21, we saw Jesus' statement, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 12, Israelites are cast out of the land. They're, they're cast into exile because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. Listen to this. They neither listened nor obeyed. They didn't hear and they didn't do. You could think of many other places. Matthew 7, the wise man who hears the word of God and does it is like the man who builds his house on the rock because he hears the word of God and he does it. James 1, be doers of the word of God and not only hearers. You keep going, but you get the idea. So how should we respond to Christ? If people look at Jesus, they see vastly different things. People look at Jesus and they respond in vastly different ways. What is at the center of how we should respond as God's people? And it's that. It's that we need to be people marked by hearing God's word and keeping it. So let's study God's word. Let's sing God's word. Let's pray God's word. Let's come to church and hear God's word preached. We need to be people marked by the hearing of God's word. But let's also do what the Lord says. Let's do his commands. It's not legalism to obey your king. It's legalism to think that your obedience is what's going to make you in right standing with your king. But when you've repented of your sin, you've turned to Christ in faith, you've become a citizen of his kingdom, our obedience is, flows out of love and thankfulness for what our king has done for us. So let's respond in that way. Let's hear God's word, and then let's do it. Let's love our God. Let's love others. Let's know God and know others. Let's serve God, and let's serve others as Livingstone Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending the victorious king into the world. You sent Christ to come and defeat Satan and his works, his deception, his temptations, his accusations against your people. And you've drawn us to yourself. You've called us. Father, help us to respond to Christ as we should. Help us to see places where we are acting as if we're in a neutral position instead of responding wholeheartedly to Christ. Help us to see places where we're relying on our own righteousness or even a list of things that we haven't done to establish ourselves as citizens in your kingdom. Correct that, Lord. And then help us to hear your word. Help us to respond with repentance and faith and a new obedience that would bring glory to our king. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.